fourth chapter, Luke chapter four, as we continue our study of following the life of Jesus chronologically through the Gospels. Luke, the fourth chapter, you'll notice, first of all, that something has changed. We're no longer in John. Now we go back to the synoptic Gospels. Luke, the fourth chapter, I would that we begin reading in verse 16 and read down through verse 30. Luke 4, 16 through 30. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to those that are blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bore him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said unto them, You will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elijah sent, but only unto Zarephath, a a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in in the time of Elisha the prophet. And none of them was cleansed, save only Naaman the Syrian. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him unto the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. We have now ended John's account of that early Judean ministry of our Lord. Do you recall that in John chapter 4, in verse 44, that as Jesus was in the process of leaving Samaria, where his ministry had been so warmly and graciously received, he says that what doesn't seem to be appropriate at the time, that no prophet has honor in his own country. And he seems to be contrasting the warm reception that he has received among the Samaritans, where he has done no great marvelous, miraculous work, with the reception that he is about to receive back in his own country. Now here, in Luke's Gospel, we find that shortly after returning to Galilee, and after a few miraculous events that have occurred in the city of Capernaum, 
Jesus returns to Nazareth, which is, after all, his hometown. Jesus, of course, was born in Bethlehem, just five or six miles outside of Jerusalem, down in Judea. But he was raised, he spent most of his life up in Nazareth, this indescript backwater little podunk of a place, sort of like Pontotoc, I guess, something like that. But out, out you know, just out yonder. Nothing remarkable about Nazareth at all. Sitting out in the hills all by itself, a little village. That's where he was reared, brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he goes to the synagogue, as probably everybody else in town did too. Being raised in a small country town, I know what it was like on Sunday. Everybody went to church on Sunday. Wasn't much else you could do on Sunday but go to church. Everybody went. That's what's happening here. Everybody in town would be there at the Sabbath day. He goes on the Sabbath as was his custom. As no doubt he had done just about every Sabbath in, of his 30 years. Except this time, something was different. You see, this time, the word of his fame, of the miraculous deeds that he had performed in Jerusalem and at Capernaum, in fact, many of these people no doubt would have been at Jerusalem during the Passover feast. Some of them may have already have witnessed some of his miraculous deeds. The news of what he had been doing elsewhere has trickled back to Nazareth. And so now you see that Jesus, though he has spent his life every Sabbath day for 30 years, more or less, he has shown up on the Sabbath day to worship there in the synagogue. This Sabbath day is different because now Jesus is not just Jesus the nobody, he's somebody. Jeff was telling me about how they rub shoulders with Miss America. Yes, well, I don't guess they ever rubbed shoulders, you know, but, uh, you know, they hobnobbed down there in Pontotoc with Miss America. Yes, you know, somebody has come to town. We, as we say in the South, we put on the dog. We, uh, you know, we put on a parade. When somebody, come, especially to a place like Nazareth, where nobody of importance ever goes, and now this is one of their own. Here's the hometown boy made good. He's making headlines down there in Jerusalem. And he has come back to us. So do you understand then why, as it came time for the reading of the law and the prophets, why on this Sabbath day the reading is given to Jesus? He will choose what is to be read this day, and he selects the scroll of Isaiah, the prophet. I think this is a rather dramatic moment. All eyes, the Scripture tell us, are, were on him. The crowd is hushed. And there's a dramatic pause because as we've been describing on Monday night, to just find your place in a scroll is going to take you a little while. They didn't have chapter and verses. It's all written and run together. And, and he's going to have to turn in this scroll, think about the problems of just... You, you just don't open it like you do your Bible. You've got to work your way from one end of the thing almost to the end of the book of Isaiah, almost to the end of the scroll, to what we have in our Bible is the 61st chapter of a book with 66 chapters in it. Almost to the end of the scroll, he must work his way. And you can imagine the tension, the drama, as he finally finds the place 
And he begins to read in what is in our Bibles, Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he rolls up the scroll, hands it to the minister, and sits down. And begins to make this comment. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. Do you understand what that means? You see, anyone in that day, anyone who knew anything about anything, would have realized that the passage that he has read is full of messianic overtones. In fact, they even got their word, Messiah, from some of the language in this text. The word Messiah means anointed. Notice the very first thing he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me. I am the Messiah. Our word Christ, Christ is the Greek Version of the Hebrew Messiah means the same thing in Greek as Messiah did in Hebrew. It means the anointed one. He is basically saying, reading this text of Scripture where the servant of Jehovah says to his father, You have anointed me. I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah. He then sits down and says, You heard it with your own ears. It's fulfilled today. You get, you tie it together. I am He. Of whom this passage speaks. But no prophet hath honor or is accepted in his own country. Now, why? I was thinking about this this week. I was thinking, you know, that sort of runs against our natural inclination, doesn't it? You know, Why wouldn't he be honored here? Maybe it's his message. You know, maybe that's what has offended them. I mean, he said, well, God's anointed me and I've come to clean house. I've come to clean your plow. I've come to call down fire from heaven, vengeance from on high upon you. I know you folks. I remember what you did to me when I was a kid. You understand? Maybe that's the reason that he hath no honor in his own country, but no, that's not it. Notice that the text says there in verse 22, they all bore him witness and wondered at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. Oh my, it is after all a mission of grace and mercy that he's on, is it not? Notice what is he saying he's come to do. He's the anointed one of God. God's spirit and power is upon him. And he's come to do some things. And what's he going to do? Call down fire from heaven on evildoers? No. He's going to release those that are captive. Give sight to the blind. Preach the gospel to the poor. So do you understand my first thought is, well, maybe they're going to be offended because of what he declares that he will do. And I don't see how that can be the case. 
I mean, you know, no one is really offended by grace. You get right down to it. No one ever takes offense at grace. I mean, you listen to some of these singers get up and sing some religious song on the TV. And I'll tell you, nine times out of ten, what will it be? Amazing grace. Did did y'all see the PBS special Bill Moyers did on the song Amazing Grace? It was run, I don't know, a year or so ago. He went around to all these people talking about what does the song Amazing Grace mean to them. Everybody loves Amazing Grace. And I tell you, not one soul that he talked to knew anything about what that song was saying. I guarantee you. Didn't have one clue of what John Newton was talking about when he penned the words to Amazing Grace. But to them, it was just, you know, the fact that, boy, we love grace. And everybody does. Everybody loves favor. I noticed that MLG and W announced last week they're going to cut back on your electric bills, you folks that live in Memphis. That make any of you mad? Anybody get upset about that? I didn't hear any complaints. Everybody said, well, hey, I'll take it. Hey, that's good. Everybody likes grace. Everybody likes favor. And that's what Jesus said he's coming to do. Nobody gets upset about grace. Now, if they get upset about something else, we're going to talk about that in a minute. But no, I don't think that's what it is. It's not his message. It's not what he came to say he's going to do. The second thing that makes me wonder, why is it that a prophet hath no honor in his own country, is because I notice everybody else that's famous and big has honor in their own country. Politicians have honor in their own country. You cross the Arkansas Bridge and what's plastered up over top top of the sign there? Arkansas, home of Bill Clinton, President of the United States. I mean, you can be proud about that. You can be proud about anything. I mean, come on. (laughs) But they're proud that the President of the... I mean, if you're in Arkansas, you can have something to gloat about. Sorry, sorry, Stephanie. I don't mean to pick on Arkansas here. Well, you know the story in Bill Clinton running for President for, for the first time when he was Governor of Arkansas, they... Reporters kept asking him, uh, Governor, uh, Arkansas is next to last in teacher's pay, and Arkansas is next to last in per capita income, next to last in literacy rate. What do you have to say about that? Clinton says, thank goodness for Mississippi. <clears throat> well, we in Mississippi don't have much to gloat over, but they've got the guy as the president. We just got the vice president over here in Tennessee, right? Do you understand what I'm saying? A politician has honor. Hope, Arkansas, drive by their birthplace of Bill Clinton. They didn't have that sign before he was president, but once he's known, once he's powerful, once he's president of the United States, we want everybody to know he's from our town. He's from our state. You understand what I'm saying? A politician has honor in his own country. Heroes have honor in their own country. Between leaving Wyoming and moving to Nashville, we live for a year in the metropolis of Farmersville, Texas. Farmersville, Texas. The name alone tells you a great deal about the place. Farmersville, Texas. But someone very, very famous came out of Farmersville, Texas. There's a monument on the square in Farmersville, at the far end. There is a monument to this man. Anybody know who it is? I'm looking at David, because David just might. Anybody know 
who came out of Farmersville, Texas. You know Steve? Audie Murphy. Now, I say that, and half of these people here don't even know who Audie Murphy is, but you older generation, you that lived through the big one, WW2, you know who Audie Murphy was, most decorated soldier in World War II and star of countless numbers of B-Westerns. Everybody knows who Audie Murphy And we had the Audie Murphy Monument on the south end of the square in Farmersville, Texas. They're proud of that fact. A hero has honor. In his own country. Movie stars. This past summer, we got to go up to Marion, Indiana, to that big Reformed Baptist family conference up there. Never been to Marion, Indiana. Didn't know one thing about it. But as we got closer, had all these billboards about this being the home of James Dean. And their motto was, Where Cool Was Born. And from the little cold snap we had while he was up there, I was about saying they're right. This was where Cool was born. Uh, cool was born there. James Dean. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? People are proud about these famous... Now, they may have the morals of an alley cat, the scruples of a Philadelphia lawyer, but we, they're famous. And we want everybody to know that they came from our town. He's one of us. I mean, we're notorious name droppers, aren't we? No. Then what's the problem? Why is it that, and I think here's the clue, a prophet hath no honor in his own country? Because you see, the prophet is a spokesman for God. And like God, if he's a true prophet, he is no respecter of persons. His message will be true and authentic and clear, whether he's with his friends or whether he's with his enemies. Whether he's speaking to a foreign populace like Jonah did to Nineveh, or whether he's standing in his hometown of Nazareth. He must tell it. Like it is. And therein lies the key to why a prophet hath no honor in his own country. You say, what's the most difficult thing about preaching? I heard Conrad Murrell make a statement a long time ago. He said, I'll tell you what the most fearful thing about preaching is. He says, it's their faces. Their faces. You don't know what he's talking about, do you? But in the first chapter of Jeremiah, where God calls Jeremiah to be a prophet, right out of the chute in verse 8, he says, And be not afraid of their faces. Jeremiah, you're going to stand before some people and you're going to deliver a message for me that men are going to hate and they're going to hate you because you're delivering that message and you must not let their faces intimidate you. You must speak for me. 
And therein is the reason why a prophet hath no honor in his own country. I've been there, folks. I've been back to my home. I've stood in my home church's pulpit and preached. And everybody's just so proud that back there, you know, going to preach. And by the end of the sermon, they're ready to take me out and tar and favor me. I know. But that's the way it is. Because you see, in your home country, people have expectations and they are offended when you do not live up to those expectations. Notice two things in particular here in our text. Two reasons the people are offended by him. He mentions both of them in verse 23, where he says, You will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. For you come along wanting to heal others, and notice that's what his mission was back up here in verse 18. You've sent me to heal the broken heart. Before you start healing everybody else, why don't you heal yourself? Before you start trying to pick that speck of dust out of everybody else's eye, get your own eye clear. You've heard this kind of talk before. Who do you think you are to be correcting us? Telling us what to do? I mean, after all, you're one of us. How dare you come back here to your hometown and take it upon yourself to tell us what we're supposed to do? You begin piece this thing together? Now, I want you to notice that this itself indicates to us that among the inhabitants of Nazareth, this little town, no one expected this of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? We, we were talking on Monday night about the canon of Scripture, and as we go into the New Testament age, we find that there were these fabricated gospels that arose in the second century of the church's existence, about some of which dealing with the childhood of Jesus, how he uh, does all these ridiculous miracles turning Birds, I believe it was birds into a statue of a bird or vice versa, one or the other, to impress or to get back at his friends that were picking on him. I mean, these fanciful things that obviously somebody made up. May I point out to you that no one in the city of Nazareth, as Jesus was growing up, is saying, boy, look at him. Man, there's Messiah, there's Messiah material. You know, we do that with football players, don't we? Boy, I bet he's going to make it big someday. He'll be an all-star. He'll be in the pros. No, nobody's doing that with Jesus. No one expects Him to be the Messiah, the Son of God. Notice that they say here in verse 22 at the end, they said, is not this Joseph's son? Do you understand? He hasn't even made a name for himself yet. He's still Joseph's son. Like I'm, I'm Bert's boy back in Nevada. You know, this is Bert's boy. This is Joseph's son. Isn't that interesting? His hometown refuses him. His own family rejects him. We see in John's Gospel that his brothers taught him. Why don't you go on down to Jerusalem? Show some of your stuff. Stretch your stuff. Nobody tries to be somebody and doesn't go down where the bright lights are. His brothers mocking him. And the Scripture there telling us that his own brothers didn't believe on him until after his resurrection. Have you ever thought about that fact? 
that his own brothers would not receive his Messiahship until after the resurrection. It's one of the strongest proofs of the authenticity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that you'll find in the New Testament. Because if anybody would have been in a position to have ruled that the resurrection was a fake, that it was just a stunt, that it was a put-on trick, that it wasn't real, that it wasn't really the real Jesus that came out of that tomb, his own brothers would have known it. And yet, look in 1 Corinthians 15, the list of folks that he appeared to after his resurrection, one of the first names listed, to James, his own brother. And from that point on, his brothers are right in the thick of things. James, the, as we would say, the pastor of the Jerusalem church. Judas, another of his half-brothers, more specifically, the writer of that little epistle of Jude that we have back there right before Revelation. In other words, his family rejected him, taunted him, mocked him. And then came the resurrection. And they spend their rest, the rest of their lives. In fact, Jude begins that little epistle. Jude's, Jude, the brother of James and the servant of Jesus Christ. Something happened to these fellows. So there's one reason. Position, heal yourself. How dare you set yourself up over us? Sounds like Joseph and his brothers, doesn't it? When he had that dream... Of them bowing down to him. Uh-uh. We'll never bow. Oh, yes, they would. And then there's another little thing that's going on here. Another reason they're offended. Notice in verse 23. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. We want you to do here what you've been doing in Capernaum and what you were doing down there in Jerusalem. In other words, we want you to do the same miracles here that you did there. And therein lies another reason why no prophet has honor in his own country. Now, a politician, as I mentioned a moment ago, has honor in his own country. I'm sort of glad Jesse Medlin won that election that day as a county supervisor. Because see, Jesse lives in our neighborhood. I mean, all we got to do is have a crack show up in our street. Man, we got crews out there. We're getting a new asphalt. Our street's never been better since Jesse was elected commissioner. Don't you suspect those folks down in Batesville just all tickled to death that Ronnie Musgrove got elected. I guess we did, governor of Mississippi. He just happens to be from Batesville. I mean, I do know the way it was in Texas back when LBJ was president of the United States. NASA all of a sudden wound up outside of Houston. How'd that happen? I'll tell you how it happened. Lady Bird had some land down there. You, you see, nice things tend to happen to you when one of yours gets elected to high office. He generally looks after the home folk. That's why politicians have honor in their own country, because we expect to get something out of them. We've got an inroad. We've got an in that nobody else has. We have a, he is, after all, our favorite son, and we expect some favors from our favorite son. And that's exactly what these people are saying to Jesus. You will say, do here what you've done elsewhere. We've got a claim on you. We've got the right to have you perform here what you have performed elsewhere. 
you beginning to see why no prophet hath any honor in his own country. Jesus then gives them a little Bible lesson. That's really what it does, a little Bible lesson. Just tells them some Old Testament stories. Old Testament stories that illustrate what we would call sovereign grace. Nobody gets upset at grace. But when you tell somebody that God just might well pass you by, that He can give His grace to whom He pleases, that He is sovereign over the dispensing of His favor, my friend, you better run. You better, you better watch your back. In other words, it's one thing when MLG and W just says, we're going to lower everybody's, everybody's uh, electrical rates. What would have happened if they'd said, we're going to lower everybody who's white? We're going to lower their rates. Or vice versa, we're just going to lower everybody who's black, their rates. How, how would you think that would go over? It's another story, isn't it? It's one thing when they're just gracious. We're just going to lower everybody's rate. It's another thing. We're going to lower your rate and your rate, but not anybody else's. You see, that's sovereign grace. That the one who is giving the grace has the right to give it to whom he pleases, as he will. That's all we mean. And by the way, if it's not sovereign grace, it's a little bit like saying country butter, I keep saying. I mean, there's just any other kind. If it's not sovereign grace, if the ability to give it to whom you will is not in the hand of the grace giver, then it's not really grace. It's a wage. It's payment for that which is earned and worked. So don't you remember Elijah's ministry? Called down that famine on the land for three and a half years. It didn't rain. And during that time, Elijah went and ministered to a widow lady. Lived in this widow woman's house in Israel? No. A lot of widows in Israel, Jesus points out. It wasn't because there was only one widow lady in the world, and she happened to be up there, a Syrian, up in the city of Sidon. No, he passed by all these widows in Israel, and he went and ministered to a widow of Zarephath a city of Sidon, provided her food, raised her son from the dead. How many widow ladies in Israel's sons died during that time? Didn't get raised from the dead. But in fact, one lady's son did get raised from the dead, and she wasn't even an Israelite. She was a Gentile. And then another little fact. He just told them Bible stories. In Elisha's ministry, and there's a bunch of lepers in Israel. There always was a bunch of lepers in Israel. Lepers everywhere. And in Elisha's ministry, there was one leper cleansed. Just one. But God passed by all the lepers of Israel and healed a Syrian. And not just any Syrian. Naaman the Syrian who happened to be the commander-in-chief of the Syrian army, the perpetual and perennial enemy of Israel. He healed the enemy's commander-in-chief of his leprosy and passed by every leper in Israel. And he's just telling them Bible story. But they get so infuriated 
that they drag him out of town. They drag him over to the edge of the brow of the hill on which their city was built, intending to cast him headlong. They'd had enough. Everybody loves grace. But oh, my friend, it started a riot when he pointed out that God can be gracious to whom he pleases. Mm. I met, I saw Al Lewis over in Pine Bluff back at the Bible conference in July at Brother Johnson's church. Al Lewis and his family was in our church in Wyoming way back in the early days. Al's now pastoring at an evangelical free church in Las Vegas, Nevada. So whenever y'all are out in Las Vegas, no, no, don't go. <laughs> no, no. But if you are, for you know some legitimate reason in Las Vegas, be sure and look up Al Lewis out at their, the E-Free Church out there in Las Vegas. But anyway, Al was teaching Sunday school class one Sunday morning at our little church. I was back with the young people in the back. Had a family from Fort Bridger come in and sit down. Man, there's a whole slew of them. Had about 10 or 12 of them. They just, man, that packed a pew in our little church. And some of the older ones were in there with Al. And I had a couple of the kids with me. And there's another younger class down in the basement. So we had them spread out all over the place. And, uh, well, anyway, Al was teaching through the book of Romans. And guess where he would be that Sunday in Romans 9, as Providence would have it. And uh, so he's teaching through the first part of Romans 9, and this guy begins, to, this, the, the man, the father of this huge family, begins to pop up and says, well, that's not fair. Well, Al, he's reading, by the way, I have a new, uh, a new American Standard Version, one of the more modern versions. And he said, well, that's what Paul said that men would say. And he begins to read there in Romans 9 where it says, And who are you, O man? And this is the way it reads in the NASV. Who are you, O man, to reply against God? Shall the thing formed, you know, reply against him that formed it or something to that effect? Well, this guy thinks, he doesn't realize that Al is reading out of the Bible. He thinks Al is talking to him. Who are you, O man, to reply against God? And right in the middle of that, this guy takes his Bible and slams it down on the pew and says, you're blaspheming the Scriptures. And Al just started shouting. He says, I'm just reading the Scripture. And the man said, where's my family? We're getting out of here. And the first thing I knew something had gone south is that the mother comes flying through the door into my class, grabs her kids, and out the door they go and slams the door behind them. Well, I guess he was talking to him. He just telling a Bible story. Just reading Scripture. That's all Jesus was doing. He's just reading some Scripture. He's just telling the Bible story. Sunday school class stuff. But pointing out that nobody can tell God what to do with His grace. And just because I grew up in your town, your next door neighbor, in your home, you have no right on God's grace. I try, emphasis on the word try, try to have great patience with those who don't hold to what we call the doctrines of grace. I myself did not believe those things for many years, so I can hardly be too impatient with those who have not come to the same conclusion as I. 
Secondly, I realize many people have never been taught these things. Certainly in our day and time, no, there's multitudes of folks out in evangelical churches. I, I suppose the only time I ever heard the word elect in my church is when we sang the church's one foundation on that second verse, elect from every nation. That's probably the only time the word was ever uttered in my church. So there's woeful ignorance concerning any doctrines having to do with God's sovereignty of grace. And then thirdly, many people have been poisoned by other people telling them what this means. Telling them that it means that this means men have no choice, men have no responsibility, people believe this, don't believe in folks getting saved, in evangelizing, in missionary work, all that junk. So I understand, I try as much as possible to have patience with folks who don't dot their I's and cross their T's as I do. But, but... Having said all that, my friend, I have come across in my years a number of people who utterly reject the very notion that God can give grace to whom He will. And it becomes clear that after a while, the reason that they so hate this doctrine is not because they don't understand it, but because they do. Because it's not because it's obscure and blurred, but because it's clear. And the clearer it gets, the more they hate it. Rusty will let me make a personal allusion to him. I, I still marvel at the story he told of a, a deacon in a Baptist church or a prominent member in a Baptist church out in the parking lot with him saying, if this Bible teaches that, I'll throw it away before I believe it. Oh, do you, can you stop and think about what you're saying? Who becomes the ultimate authority? My friend, if this is not what God says in His Word, please come and correct me. That is the only reason I preach these things. I didn't believe it. I was not raised to believe it this way. I've come to the conclusion this is precisely what God's Word says. If it's not, correct me. But if words mean anything, if words mean what words mean, what other conclusion can you come to in all of this? What is Jesus saying? Why are they so upset? What is it that has struck a nerve here? But that God has the right to pass you by if He pleases. You have no claim on His grace. You cannot make Him perform for you. You cannot make Him give you. Now that doesn't mean there's not promises in the Scripture to lost men, to come to Christ and God's promises that He will receive them. But my friend, I promise you this, on the authority of God's Word, you come to Christ like these people, believing you have the right to it, believing that He's got to do this for you. And I promise you, on the authority of God's Word, you will get nothing from Him. You say, how can you be so dogmatic? Because Jesus Himself said, I've not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. And pray tell, how else do you define the righteous except those who think they have the right to it? The right to it because they've done the right thing 
They've performed the right work. they said the right words. They go to the right church. They've been baptized the right way. They have the right color skin. They're of the right nationality. And on down the line you go. It may be this, it may be that. But the bottom line is this. The righteous man thinks he has the right to God's grace. Just like Nazareth thought they had the right to demand that what Jesus had done elsewhere, he do there in their city. Do you realize he would have done it? He would have done it had they not had that attitude. But my friend, once you come to Christ saying, I've got the right to it and I deserve it, and you've got to do it for me, the gates of grace slam shut in your face. He will not be manipulated. I heard a young preacher, and young preachers say some stupid things. I confess. Oh, my. It's sort of like what they say about rookie quarterbacks. The only good thing about rookie quarterbacks next year, they won't be rookie quarterbacks anymore. That's sort of like young preachers. The only good thing about young preachers, they won't be young preachers too long. Wait long. I'm wait for a day when Tim's not here to say this. But oh my, I think back to some of the stupid things I've said. Well, anyway, there's this young preacher back in Lancaster years ago, south of Dallas. He got up in the pulpit and he says, uh, he's talking about the hymn, Pass Me Not, O Gentle Savior. He said, if I had my way, I'd tear that hymn out of every hymn book I found it in. He says, Jesus will never pass anybody by. And I'm thinking, oh my soul. Oh, I didn't know much about anything at the time. didn't know which end was up, but I knew better than that. Look around you, fella. There's multitudes being passed by. And oh, I can think of no hymn that strikes exactly what I'm talking about this morning. The attitude with which a repentant sinner comes to Christ in that hymn. While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. I come at the back door of Your mercy. I come asking for grace and grace alone. I come, I have no right. I've sinned away any right I might have had or thought I had to Your grace. If You do what's right, You'll put me in hell. But while on others Thou art calling, do not pass me by. My friend, the scary thing about all of this is that the thing that a lost man thinks will qualify himself for grace is in fact the very thing that disqualifies himself for grace. Do you hear that? The very thing that he thinks will qualify himself for grace is the very thing that will disqualify. And the very thing that he thinks will disqualify him is the thing that qualifies him grace. Come strutting your stuff. Come demanding your rights. Wanting what you've got coming to you. And you'll find no grace. But come confessing that you have no right. You send it all away. That He ought to put you in hell. And He could do it. And He'd be just in doing it. 
And oh, my friend, grace is there waiting on you. How about you today? Where are you? Prophet hath no honor in his own country. And one reason why that's so is those of his own country think they've got a claim on his grace. Let's bow. Father, help us to not make this fatal, eternally fatal mistake of thinking, Father, that we have an end. We have a special privilege. We have the right to demand favor of Your Son. Thinking that because we're better than the person next to us, thinking that because our skin is this color or that, thinking that because we have done this religious work or that, that therefore we have an in, we have a special privilege that others don't. Father, save us from that fatal, fatal error that we confess that there is nothing, no difference whatsoever between us and the worst man that has ever lived. That though in our eyes we measure sin, we say this is worse than that. But in your sight it's infinitely reprehensible, whatever it is. We have no right, we have no claim to anything that you might have. And because you've chosen to be gracious to some doesn't mean you've got to be gracious to us. But Father, we have heard the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. We've heard of this one that was anointed to come to the poor and the brokenhearted and set at liberty those that are captives and give sight to those that are blind to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, that you, you have a time where you will receive those who throw down the arms of their rebellion and repent and come to you seeking amnesty. Father, you, you have given us a offer, a tender of mercy and grace. And so, Father, we, we come. We have no right to expect it. We have no right to demand it. But, oh, Father, we hear the good news. You welcome sinners, and that's who we are. You welcome rebels. You welcome those who are foreign and estranged from Thee to come and sit down at Your table as Your own children. And so, Father, on that basis and that basis alone, we come. Not because of ourselves, but because of Christ, we come. Not because we've decided what You should and should not do, but because Christ said, Ye that are weary and heavy laden, come, and I'll give you rest. Bless us as we think on these things. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.